0: Please give your attention to the reading of God's word. First Corinthians chapter three. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, He will suffer loss, even though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. This is the word of the
1: Lord. Amen. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is a wonderful chapter, specifically because it addresses a number of issues At work in the Corinthian church, one of the dangers of reading the New Testament is, although there are signs and wonders and mighty powers on display, if you read any of the epistles, uh, you know quite clearly, unless you're only reading Ephesians, every single church in the New Testament had deep problems. And one of the first problems that Paul addresses in the Corinthian church is their sin of a practical denial of the gospel by placing their trust and their boast in a particular apostle or teacher. And as I said in the announcement earlier, this is, I'm not using this passage as a corrective word to say that this is what we have been doing, but rather there's a corollary or there's an analogy from what was going on in Corinth to the danger that is so prevalent in the American church today and is common even for pastors that they become so enamored with or attracted to a Bible teacher or someone who's deeply impacted their life and start to really identify themselves as I'm a disciple of this person rather than recognizing that everything comes from one head and one foundation, which is Jesus Christ. And so Paul is answering a problem of dissensions in the church. And just to speak plainly, most of you are not saying I'm a disciple of Greg or I'm a disciple of John or I follow Jason. <laughs> that's not that's not why I chose this passage, just to be clear. Rather, it is an analogous an analogous situation in which he he answers that issue by pointing out the pure doctrine, which is there's <laughs> one foundation. And so if you are finding yourself, man, I'm I'm really not sure how I'm how I'm dealing with this idea of a a slight change in church polity, or not, not really even a change in polity, just in a change in how we do life as a community, not having him around in that sort of way. What would the gospel answer that with? How would you satisfy those sorts of fears with the scriptures? And I believe 1 Corinthians 3 is perhaps the most clear passage that I could point to. If you want some other passage, I would recommend Acts 20, when Paul is leaving the Ephesian church and he calls their elders together. The reason I didn't choose that passage is because that was Paul saying goodbye forever. And um, that's not what's going to happen here. Also, Paul's alluding to his own death. So it just wouldn't be an appropriate passage to use. Although if you are considering being a leader in the church or even leading a Bible study one day, I would encourage you, Acts 20:28 20, it's perhaps the most precious verse in the entire New Testament as regards the office of an elder. It is to, to look after yourself and the flock of God, which he paid for with his own blood, of which the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer. It's an amazing verse. It's um, quite precious to me. So I want to look at five elements of 1 Corinthians 3, specifically relating to the sin that the Corinthian church was engaging in, the putting forth that Paul says of the doctrine of which God provides all growth. I want to look at the foundation of Jesus Christ as a radical element, of the, and by radical I mean a root element of the Christian faith, that without this foundation of Christ, you cannot rightly be called a believer or, or consider yourself to have been redeemed and have true life in the gospel. I want to look at this call to take care how you build. Paul says, take care how one builds upon it. And I want to look at that in two primary ways. First, how we build our lives personally and how we build our life corporately upon that foundation of Jesus Christ And then finally I want to boast in Christ's provision uh, at the end of the passage as Paul says all things are yours. I want to disclose and discover and examine what does he mean by all things are yours. Certainly he doesn't mean that all material things are yours. Although I do believe God provides his people with whatever they need to accomplish the ministry. He doesn't mean you can just go out and take anything because all things are yours. He has a specific desire that he wants to communicate to this corinthian church because they've started to live in a poverty of spirit that is not profitable where they're just attaching i have nothing valuable so i need to attach to the fame of some man or or the reputation of some apostle they've begun to identify themselves as children as it were of paul or apollos and yet paul wants to explain to them everything that you could possibly want is in christ so um, those are the five five elements that I want to look at today. So as Paul addresses the division in the Corinthian church, he answers that division by explaining to them the nature of their sin, and he shows it to be what I believe is a fundamental denial of the gospel um, or a practical denial of the gospel. So in the New Testament, we see over and over again, especially if you were here during the time of the book of Galatians, when we went through that as a church, that series put forth one major idea, which is that the Galatians were not articulating a different gospel in their speech or their teaching, but they were living a different gospel in their life. That is to say, they had head knowledge, and yet they had, they had orthodoxy on a theological level. They were rightly thinking about some facts of the gospel but there had been a complete divorce with the way that they lived and the way that they interacted with the fellow members of the church such that they were saying Christ is not enough you have to you have to take on circumcision and obey the law to be reconciled to God and Paul is making a very he's doing a very similar thing he's answering a fundamental denial of the gospel in the heart of the Corinthian church and so I, I just want to say that what he's answering, the reason he puts it at the beginning of the letter is because of how vital it is. Later issues, for example, in 1 Corinthians 5 and 6, we start to see other issues like sexual immorality in which a person in the church is sleeping with his mother-in-law. Okay, so if you don't know the 1 Corinthians, the rest of the context, I'm bringing that up not to draw shock and awe, but rather to say he didn't put that in chapter 1. And if you or I were writing the letter, we would want to put that in chapter 1. Why is it important to see that he pushes that into the letter? It's because this is more of a foundational issue. Now, clearly sin is sin. But what he's doing here is he's talking about the heart of the gospel, which is then evidenced in the fruit of sin throughout the church. So, I believe he puts it at the beginning of the gospel because it's, it's it is a or beginning of the epistle because it, it is a foundational denial or a fundamental denial of what it means to be a Christian. Though Christ had called them by name, they began to boast in spiritual leaders. Christ himself warned against this saying, call no man master, call no man teacher, call no man father, for you have one, the Lord, you have one teacher, the Messiah, you have one father, your father in heaven. And so he's answering a problem in the Corinthian church in which they've begun to latch on to personalities. And it's not just that they've become students of or fans of a particular human author or a particular human apostle or pastor. They've gone way beyond uh, affinity with Paul's teaching or like or love of Paul's teaching to beginning to establish religious factions of this is my guy, I'm a Pauline disciple, or I'm an apostle, uh, an Apollos disciple, and I'm better than the Pauline apostle uh, disciples. They've begun to so attach their hearts and and doctrines to personalities that they've fundamentally left the pure faith of Jesus Christ. He says in verse 3 for you are still of the flesh for while there is jealousy and strife among you are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way. And I think it's important to understand he's saying something about this notion of a human way. For when one follow, for one says i follow paul and another i follow apollos are you not merely being human? And it might rightly be said that following a man is a manly, air quotes, manly way of living. It is essentially putting trust in princes. If you were here during our time in Advent, we spent some time in, in Psalm 146. And Psalm 146 taught that it's folly to put your trust in man or in a prince of men in whom there is no salvation because on the day of that man's death, his plans come to nothing. What Paul's doing is he's, he's bringing forth this same idea. You guys are doing a foolish thing. And he's saying that trusting in a man is a man, manly or human way of living. It is essentially a reversion back to how one might have thought about themselves before they came to Christ. And it might be understood in the context of that setting up a man as your spiritual head... And by spiritual head, I don't mean pastoral oversight or, or some sort of input or discipling. I mean, these people have begun to look at Paul as their savior. That they are reverting back to this sort of idea that they are sons of Adam. And so exalting any son of Adam is a fundamental denial that you've now come under a new man, Jesus Christ. All of us were sons of Adam, and in Adam we sinned. And Adam was the source and the head of us as a spiritual people. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. And the Gospels and the Epistles present Jesus Christ as the new Adam, a new spiritual head by which, by which regeneration we come under a new man, the final man, the, the Christ. So trusting a man is a fundamental denial, denial of this. It is a fundamental denial of the necessity of Christ coming in the flesh. And if you're familiar with John's epistles, that is the spirit of Antichrist. Why? Because it's saying that a man other than Christ is necessary to be a disciple. That's the heart of the Corinthian heresy here. It's saying Christ's teachings and Christ's gospel as put forth by the apostles isn't enough. You need to pick a stream and you need to to boast in that stream. It would be somewhat similar today if you were... uh, in the modern era and you said, you know, I just, I love John Piper. And I just, you know, if you're not listening to John Piper, you're just really out of the call of God for your life. And I love John Piper. I've listened to three of his sermons this week, but I don't believe John Piper is necessary to be saved. That's what the Corinthians were doing. They were saying, I'm of Paul and you're not as good as I am. And, and they took it way beyond a simple matter of preference Although God uses ministers of the gospel, they are not the ultimate aim of the Christian life. Verse five, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. That's an amazing statement for Paul to say of himself. And in fact, his boldness in his self-deprecating comment might be somewhat shocking to us. Paul just said, he who waters is nothing. And he was the one, or sorry, he who plants, he who waters is nothing. He then says, I planted, I'm nothing. Who am I? I'm a servant of Christ and I'm only a servant, notice closely in verse 5, as the Lord assigned to each. In, this next, in his next letter to the Corinthian church, he then again goes on to say, We do not proclaim ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and we as his servants. Christ himself taught his disciples in Luke 17 that they should consider themselves as unworthy servants when they have done the work that they've been attest to do, and then he, he he uses an analogy from human life, saying that you know if your servant comes in after the day's labors, he doesn't first feed himself, he first feeds his master, and then the servant eats, so even in on a human level, the servant's priority is always the master, and so Paul's using that exact same line of thought he's saying that we are nothing other than servants and we were given to be servants by God. The Lord himself is sovereign over the influences of gospel ministers in conversion, maturity, and sanctification. This is so important because as we believe in the doctrine often put forth, sola Deo Gloria, what what that doctrine means is only God gets the glory for our salvation, sanctification, maturation, any gospel effort that results in fruit, he gets the glory for that because he provides the energy for that. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who is at work in you both to will, the desire to do it, and to work. So both the the heart to want to obey and the power to obey come from the Holy Spirit. And so we have to understand that what Paul is saying is you guys are missing out on giving God glory. You can't rightly praise him because you're so focused on Apollos or Paul. And yet it's God who gives the growth. I want you to imagine this for a second. The farmer who sows, this is the image that Paul used, the farmer who sows and waters cannot cause the seed to germinate nor cause the seed to sprout forth roots and to grow a stalk and to process the sun the the farmer cannot control let's extend the analogy the farmer cannot control the weather the farmer cannot cause the sun to shine the farmer is not in charge the farmer is the penultimate reason for that seed's growth penultimate means secondary underneath the ultimate the ultimate cause of the seed to grow is that god gives life to the seed If you take a seed that's 100 years old and it's not been kept well and it's surely dead and you put it in the ground as a farmer, you will have no success. The seed has to be alive and it has to be very clearly given life by God. Likewise, Paul cannot directly cause regeneration or sanctification. I want to state it very plainly. Unless God gives the growth, there is no growth. You can listen to as many sermons as you want and you will not be guaranteed to be profited by them. It is God who is at work always, whether it's sanctification or coming to faith in the first place, whether it's maturity or just mere inquisitiveness about the gospel, it is God who is at work in the gospel. Because of Paul's grace or because of God's grace, Paul was converted from a murderous infidel it's important to remember that when you are in these debates. What, what, what they're saying is, I follow a guy who's this great theological master who's written a bunch of letters to the churches and founded churches in multiple cities. What they usually weren't boasting in, I follow a guy who used to murder other Christians. And that is very helpful because it kind of levels the playing field on the human pride. It's, it, they're choosing to dissect which parts of Paul they're boasting in to the denial of the glory of God in the grace shown to Paul. Paul says, I was an apostle, untimely born. I wasn't even in the right narrow band of history to see Jesus Christ in the flesh. And God revealed himself to him by Christ showing up on that road to Damascus and knocking him off his donkey and revealing Jesus to him. And then for a long period of time, the Holy Spirit discipled Paul in rereading the scriptures and fellowshipping privately with believers. And then he was fruitful in ministry. And so to boast in Paul without boasting in God's grace is to boast in someone who doesn't really exist. It's a figment of who Paul was, it wasn't the real Paul. He was given the ministry of reconciliation and was used by God to lay the foundation of Christ in the church of Corinth. Verse 10, according to the grace of God given to me, both in the regeneration and in the circumstance of being used as a minister, I laid a foundation, like, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. At the root of our faith is the reality that all men have sinned and nothing good dwells in them. And so Paul is saying that there is a foundation which has to be laid. And if that foundation is not laid upon Jesus Christ, it will be destroyed. God put forth Christ as a propitiation in his blood, which applies to us in faith. Without Jesus Christ answering the chief problem of sin and rebellion, we cannot come to God because we are unclean, but also there is a judgment of sin, of God's wrath, which lays upon us. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not believe in the Son, God's wrath abides on him. And so those who believe in Jesus Christ not only are atoned for sin, they also are established as a new creation and not just singularly, but as Paul brings out quite clearly, they're made a new people. By the spirit, we who were dead have been regenerated as a new creation in Christ and therefore Christ must be seen as an all-sufficient mediator. What do I mean by mediator? I mean that there is one through whom we must be represented to God. And likewise, God must be represented to us. And that happens in Jesus Christ alone. If we are not in Christ, no appeal to Peter, Paul, or any other pastor would amount to anything. Imagine the folly of, of arriving on the day of judgment. And God taking issue with forever labored uh, hardness of heart to the gospel. And, sa- and someone says, well I read Calvin's Institutes. Can you imagine what sort of force that would move the Almighty on the Day of Judgment? It would move him not at all, just to be clear. The point is this, that unless one is founded upon Jesus Christ, and unless that foundation is laid well and level and is protected, that foundation is insufficient. If it's any other foundation other than the foundation of Jesus Christ's atoning work and mediatorial office, it is not a good foundation. Therefore, building a soul's foundation on a man who is not the God-man is building upon sand. Jesus said, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them is like one who built his house upon a foundation. The storms come, the winds blow, and the house stands. Anyone who doesn't is like someone who builds upon sand. The winds come, the storms come, the winds blow, and great is the fall of that house. I think he's somewhat talking about the temple, but he's also talking about the life of a soul. That a person who builds their life upon Jesus Christ is building upon a sure foundation. I was, I was listening to a worship song the other day and um, I won't sing it just because I don't have any backing music right now but um, the, the chorus went something like I will build my life upon your love. It is a firm foundation. I will build my trust. In you alone, and I will not be shaken. And it, it was just this amazing chorus that this song was putting forth of, unless I build my life on the love of God, I have nothing that is sure. that Nothing that I can trust in. And, and so this is what Paul is putting forth. He's saying, if you're not built on the foundation of God, your work will not remain. Therefore, we must be careful how we build both our individual lives, our personal lives, and as we are called by God's grace to build the church. And I mean this in two ways. As we each are responsible for obeying Christ individually, so also where we have influence over our families and or the church, we ought to build in this way. I don't think Paul is primarily talking about individuals, but it applies to individuals and churches as a whole. Paul's imagery here of the variety and the quality of building materials suggests that there are varying degrees about the suitableness of doctrine which one can build their life. The reason I use that analogy or that imagery rather uh, or that example of the song was the love of God is not an abstract thing. It is doctrine applied. That's what I mean by saying there's a varying quality of the doctrines which we use. Because building your life upon your trust in your own ability, that is a doctrine. It happens to be a doctrine of demons. And what we build our life with is doctrine. You might not express it in theological terms, but it is a doctrine. Building your life upon the strength of a local church and and somehow building that life in such a way as if that church was removed, your faith would be shipwrecked, that would be a heresy. Now, I realize how shocking that might seem to you, but guess what? Churches die all the time, and Christians have to go on being Christians. I was just, just this week, a pastor became a, a cause of national uproar for confessing sin that was hidden for 20 years. Now, I, if, if that would rattle you to your core, then I suggest you examine your foundation. Yes. I was listening again to another sermon, uh, and this was put forth by a man named Sinclair Ferguson. Please don't become I Am of Sinclair. Um, but he's a very good, I, I have deeply appreciated his sermons. And one of the things which, as I was listening to it, it just caused me to, you know that place where it says Jesus rejoice greatly in the Holy Spirit? It was, it was one of those moments. And he said this simple phrase, I am one for whom Christ was not ashamed to die. That was all he said. And it, it rattled me to my core of, yeah, that's the gospel. I was worthless and yet God's love came to me. I am one for whom Christ was not ashamed to die. Unless that is the foundation of your soul, your soul is on a bad foundation. Gold, silver, and precious stones are the vital and pure teachings of the scriptures. What do I mean by that? I didn't learn I am one for whom Christ is not ashamed to die apart from the scriptures. That's what we learn from the scriptures. So, The scriptures are profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. What does training in righteousness mean? It means how to live rightly related to God. How to live as someone who wants to do the law of God from the heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean understanding all the facts of theology in some abstract, disconnected way. It means how do I understand the scriptures as as forming my life and instructing me how to relate to this God who has saved me. Wood, hay, and straw are the opinions of men, vain philosophies, myths, and and, uh, traditions. Especially traditions that are not constantly pointing back to the source of them. As good as spiritual uh, training in various matters of the church, including uh, church seasons and, and understanding the hymns of the church and the doctrines, of the historic reform creeds and confessions, as much as those are profitable, if one exalts those things above Christ in some way that being satisfied with knowing them and yet not knowing Christ truly, um, that, would be, that would be an aberration from the norm. That would be improper. It would be doing what Paul is bringing the Corinthian church out of, of trusting in Paul or Apollos or Calvin or Piper or Keller now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day. will disclose it. As I, as I maintain here, I do not believe that Paul is saying that this day, which your English Standard Version capitalized, which is not capitalized in the original manuscripts because all the words were capitalized. Every letter was capitalized in the Greek. Uh, They capitalize day here, but I do not believe that Paul is saying that there is only a revelation of one's work on the day of judgment. I believe he's saying that there is, in a sense, an eternal now day which is applying that as light comes and reveals what's in darkness, that that's the sort of day which is being uh, used as God to reveal the quality of one's work. It is simply a day of adversity which comes routinely, and it if you have not examined this aspect of life, it might be helpful to, to imagine it. Um, just today, this morning, before church, I was encountered with multiple things, which, had I not responded to rightly, would have been exposing whether my work was built on, on the foundation of Christ or not. Every single day your work is being exposed, whether it is of Christ or not of Christ, whether it is built upon his forgiveness, and that forgiveness becomes forgiveness for others. The fire of God's word comes often, and it reveals what our work is made out of, whether or not it's blessed by God. Isaiah sees at one point the fire of God's word, and it comes, and it reveals what remains in Israel as being of God or not of God. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. Verse 15, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though as he himself will be saved, but as only through fire. Again, I do not believe this is just speaking about the, uh, the final judgment. I believe that God is constantly bringing the fires of life over the life of a believer and the life of a church in order to expose what is right and to expose what is wrong. And it's God's grace that he does that. Those who build up the church with a work that remains receive a reward. 1 Thessalonians says, are you not our joy and crown? Isn't that amazing? He writes to the Thessalonian church and as an apostle and a team, he says, the Thessalonians are our joy and crown. Peter says, those who are overseers who do well receive a crown from Christ. And in that passage, that crown's eternal, unfading, unable to be diminished, won't rust. And yet Paul uses the exact same imagery to tell tell the Thessalonians, you're our joy, you're our crown. John says in his epistles that that he is happy to hear that his children are walking in the truth. That that fills him with joy. So this is what I take Paul to be saying here is those who build upon the foundation of Christ with gold, silver, and precious stones are those who both individually and corporately are building upon the foundation of Christ in such a way as to build up a temple for the Holy Spirit. And they build with pure doctrine, which is not able to be removed with fire. Therefore, as we seek to grow as a church, We have to build with the end in mind. We are and desire to be more perfectly a temple of the Holy Spirit. This is where the the King James is quite helpful because in the King James, they preserve the plurality of the second personal pronoun with the word ye, Y-E. And in the English standard and modern English translations, all second person pronouns collapse down to you, Y-O-U. And if we were in the south, it might be appropriate to say y'all. But if you read in the King James, or if you have the ability to go to the original Greek, you will see that Paul is not saying that, uh, that John Luke, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, later in this book, he does say that. He does say, I will not take myself and join it with the member of a harlot, because I'm a member of Christ's body. He does emphasize that. But here he says, y'all are a temple of the Holy Spirit. You all are a temple of the Holy Spirit corporately. Why is this important to understand? Well, if you look at the end of the book of Matthew, Jesus sends his people out into all the world. And that recapitulates the original ending of the Old Testament, which is that Cyrus sends the people back into the land to build a temple. Christ is not just sending the disciples and apostles to go build individual believers in every nation who are just geographically dispersed. He's sending them to go build the temple everywhere. That's what Paul is pointing to. He's saying you all together are a temple for the Holy Spirit. So what would, it, what would first corinthians 3 17 mean in the context of building rightly what would it look like to destroy god's temple hearing this with the rest of the chapter destroying god's temple would be building very important parts of the walls and or roof with things that were not pure doctrine because when the fire comes and those things are not gold silver precious stones those parts of the buildings burn and the rest of the structure collapses right that's what I think he's saying here. Do not destroy the temple of God by building it with mixture. You have to build it with precious stones. Though called into Zion, they've become Babylonians in spirit, if you are thinking about it in this way. Though through quarreling and envy, the Corinthians are destroying the temple of the spirit. They're, they're like, it, it's kind of like the language of exile. They're, they're establishing major parts of the Corinthian culture in their church as being a personality cult, being a, being a celebrity cult. And oh, how this is prevalent in the church today. So, closing this section, Paul then reiterates warning his warnings against idolizing a man. He says, "So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, what does he mean here? He means you have a right to receive from Paul what God wants you to receive from Paul. You have a right to, from Apollos, receive those things which are good and true. You have a right to Cephas. You." You as a Christian have an inheritance in the church of God and that is the writings of the apostles and good and godly books. If you ever want to come over to my house, I will let you see my library. I will not let you borrow the books, but you can take pictures of the books. <laughs> if, if you doubt my love of the apostles and their spiritual heirs teaching, just come and look at my library. Look at the library back there. We love godly leaders We are profited. It's our inheritance as the people of God that God has preserved where possible the wisdom of the church fathers, the the reformers, the Puritans, all those who have helped his people. He's preserved those works and those are our heritage. John Piper is mine, right? To put it in a modern way. Keller is mine. But not in such a way that my life is devoted to that person. Or if they should stumble, I would be shipwrecked. Or, if they should say something heretical, I'll side with them because I trust them more than myself or other godly leaders or the plain reading of scripture. So, he goes on to say, all things are yours or the world, the life, uh, life and death. Did you know that death is yours? Death is your entrance into the heavenlies? That's a whole other sermon. How we approach death is very wrong in the modern era. We kind of ignore it. We put people in homes where we don't have to see them die. We, we, we push people to the fringes. But death is a gift to the Christian. Paul says, I would like to go, but it's for your sake that I stay. And the reason he says I would like to go is he understands what's on the other side of the veil. So death is yours, the present, the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Though for a season we will be lacking one of our pastors, all things are ours. Everything necessary for life and godliness have been granted to us through God's power. If you want to look at that, that would be a great reading to read tonight at your family dinner or, or throughout the week. 2 Peter 1, three through 3-7. Because what he does there is he, he puts forth the mighty power of the Holy Spirit that is granted to you all things which are necessary for life and godliness. Everything that you could possibly need has been given to you in Christ through the scriptures. This season is not a judgment, but a time in which we as a body are going to be experiencing growing pains and real growth. Growing pains always precede and are with and followed by real growth. And that real growth looks like an increased capacity and longevity. It's my conviction that the church should build to exist forever. Now, certain congregations, various tearing down of nations, establishing nations, tearing down kings, establishing kings, certain things will not remain. Personalities will not remain. Individual congregations may or may not remain. But the church should be built. And what do I mean by that? I don't mean structures. I mean people, families, communities, schools those things should be built in such a way as that, they would, that God would be pleased to preserve them. Yes. In this season, we ought to remember that our chief end, as I mentioned in the announcement earlier, is to glorify and enjoy God. As powerful and as wonderful as ministry is, the life of the church, ultimately, my responsibility to God is for the souls who are under my care. But before that happens, my responsibility is to glorify God and enjoy him. And when I'm removed, whether it be for a particular season or an illness or just the end of my life, that will need to be my core and my center. And the same is true for you. You might think of yourself as a software developer or you might think of yourself as a plumber or an electrician and that's your calling. And it is indeed your calling for a time. Or a mother or a father or a teacher or a doctor, that's your calling. But your real calling is to know your maker and to be satisfied in him and to commune with him through the Holy Spirit and the scriptures. That's what your real calling is to do. The Heidelberg Catechism begins, and I hope you will be able to join us during Andy's uh, class. I don't know if he's going through Heidelberg, but I think he is. And it begins with the most wonderful statement of what is our only hope in life. And it, the answer is our only hope is that we belong both body and soul in life and death to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's our only hope. It's not whether or not I do well as a pastor, although I should try. It's not whether you do well as a father or mother, although you should try. Ultimately, your only hope is that you have been saved by God and that you enjoy God and that he's caused you to grow in such a way as he is your chief and supreme joy. That's your only hope. So I would encourage you please pray for us as a church. If you haven't been praying for your pastors, please start praying for them. And also pray for John, and, John Gray and Anvesh who are um, in training. And also pray that God would help you to use this season profitably as well. That this would be not just for my dad as he's taking his sabbatical, but would be for our entire church a season of revitalizing and, and coming back to our first love. And being satisfied in his word and in his spirit. So let's close. Father we thank you for your word. We thank you for its precious promises. And uh, how clearly it shows Jesus Christ. And how it reveals to us all things that are necessary for life and godliness. We thank you that your word is clear. And it's profitable. And it's useful. And it makes the wise out of the simple. And it's a light and a shining path. And it's better than gold. Even much fine gold. We thank you, Lord, for all of your leadings of our church as a, as a community and us individually. We thank you that you are mindful of us, that you know what we need, and you give it to us. We thank you for your leadership, Lord, and we do enter this season as a people committing to trust in you. And Lord, we, we believe in your sovereign purposes and plans, and Lord, even so, help our unbelief. In the times where we are fearful or, or questioning whether this is good or right or wondering whether your hand is in it, Lord, help us to, to come back and to approach you with humility and to let you lead us, both as a people and individually. We thank you, God, for your gospel and what it tells us of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, that he is our only foundation. We pray that we would build our lives upon that and that that would be a sure and steady foundation, which would last forever and ever. We thank you for the glory of your gospel and your leadership by your spirit. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.